Hey guys, it's Sierra and Kirtan, and welcome back to our podcast. Yay! Yay. Killer Crime and Coffee. Um, so grab your coffee, um, sit down, cozy up, and we're going to be covering Jack the Ripper today. So yeah, welcome back to our second episode. We're very surprised that we're doing this. Uh, We thought we would get totally bad reviews or we would just, you know, it would load on Spotify and we'd be like, yeah, no, no, not working for us. Sorry. Anyway. Um, so what are you, what are you drinking today? Um, I am drinking a strawberry acai lemonade refresher from Starbucks and I'm not drinking, I know it's a little bit caffeinated, but I'm not drinking a lot of caffeine because I already had a lot of caffeine earlier. I had a monster and I had a macchiato. Monsters are not good for you. Monsters are, they taste good. Mom's going to listen to this and she's going to yell at you. Okay, well, you know what? Sorry, Mom. I sorry, apologize. Mom. I'm sorry you, you raised this child and she just turned out the way that she did. Disappointment. So, um, since I'm not going to get asked what I'm drinking, um, I'm <laughs> drinking a peppermint iced latte with caramel drizzle inside the cup. Very delish. Um, I love peppermint coffee. That's like my go-to. I'm kind of like iffy about, it has to be, I don't know. Like I have just to be really in the mood. Yeah, but like peppermint real, coffee. just like straight up peppermint. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I don't really jam. like like pepperminty like candy that's anymore. My jam. I just like love gum, it. great, but like peppermint. Mm. Yeah, I just love peppermint coffee. It's like one of my favorite things. Nice and I have peppermint for my coffee at my house yeah, next to my coffee brewer. She texts me. She's like, "I'm super broke this week, so like, how about we, you know, if you wanna, if you wanna coffee, peppermint coffee, just let me know." <laughs> but I got her peppermint coffee because I'm not broke. Well, I am broke, but. So, um, how was your week? What did you do? Um, my week was okay. I worked and I slept. And I didn't really do much this week. So, yes. Hmm. Hmm. I got home at like five or six every day because I keep working until four and it's like an hour. Mm, Yeah. yeah. So then I just get tired and I just eat food and go to bed. And we're working on this 11 page, um, story that we have here. My my uh, notes are 11 pages long, which is somewhat concerning. So we'll see if we can get this into one part. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with like an hour and a half. No, but like we just talk a lot and yeah. yeah, it might just be a lot. Like it's pretty like it's not like super gory, like the details, but like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can get there. So, um, yeah, my week was crazy. Um, I'm super tired. If Lexi didn't keep the part in about a concussion, she apparently has a concussion. I do have a concussion. Um, maybe not anymore. I don't know if that's, like, something that lasts for, like, more than one day. Um, it lasts for, like... Takes a while to heal or something. Yeah, it can be, like, a week or two. Well, I mean, yeah. So, uh, that's fun. Also, broke one of my glass straws this morning. I was very upset about that. Uh So, like, I made my coffee, my peppermint coffee, and it was, like... 
Perfect. Okay. Chef's kiss. Okay. So um, putting it in my my mug. All right. Uh-huh. My little my little tumbler. Right. It's not little. It's actually like a thirty-two ounce thing of coffee. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I put it in my tumbler. Stick my straw through the little hole on the top, and I twist the cap, and I hear a crackling sound, and I'm like, "What is that?" And then was it hot or iced coffee? It was iced coffee, and it just oh. blew up. I think maybe it got stuck like on an ice cube in there, and it was like bending away that I couldn't bend. I would be very upset, and I would just drink the coffee at the class. Yeah. Well, luckily. I made a full pot so I could make another one. Well, that's good. But yeah, I, I was just, still pretty salty about that. I would just straight up, like, okay. yeah. iced coffee. like Yeah, just glass, just, like, glass spewed coffee. in my face. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, 10 out of 10. Also, I didn't tell anyone, but my cat, Bucky, had another, uh, um, <laughs> he had a, was a strawberry he had fire. another, um, uh, UTI. So, uh, there goes another 1500 vet bill. It's $1,500. Take him to emergency vet, yeah, because, of course, it happened at 10 o'clock at night, and he was blocked. So he was in the the animal hospital for about two days. I did not know that. Yeah, this hmm. is, my week's been crazy. Well, at least you're making up for <coughs> my lack of excitement. Yeah. Week. So, but yeah, so what are we covering today, Sierra? Um, so we are covering a, an oldie but a goodie. An oldie but a goodie. A goodie. We're doing Jack the Ripper. I'm doing Jack the Ripper. Okay. So this is exciting. So what made you one. what made you want to do Jack the Ripper? Um, because Jack the Ripper just, you know, every time I think of hmm, serial killers, I think of Jack the Ripper. I don't think of Ted Bundy. I don't well, I mean I do, but like first person is Jack the Ripper. I also read this very good it's a fictional book, but it's based off the Jack the Ripper time period called Stalking Jack the Ripper. I actually, I don't know, have you ever watched, um, I think it's on Netflix, it's a, of a like a show, mm-hmm. and it's kind of based off of like Ichabod Crane and the the Headless Horseman. I did not watch it, but I know But you know about. what I'm talking about. Okay, yeah. so one of the episodes, which was actually one of my favorite episodes, was off Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. and like the whole idea was the knife that he was killing these people with was what was changing the person into Jack the Ripper. So Jack the Ripper wasn't a person. It was, like, this haunted knife. So that's why, like, you know how, like, one... I don't know if you, like, came across this, but, like, one mm-hmm. of the things was, like, there's multiple Jack the Rippers throughout time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which is, um... This is going to be a two-parter, probably, because this is just... This episode is just going to be, like... They have, like, the five main victims um, that happen relatively close to each other in a very short amount of time, which are, like, the most, like, known victims of Jack the Ripper... But there are so many, like, conspiracy theories and suspects who, they obviously still to this day don't know exactly who he was or they were. But that'll be in my Yeah, so, like, that one. was, like, the thought process was that the knife was just, like, taking over these people. That's crazy. Yeah. Hmm. So, all right, guys. So, uh, I guess grab your coffees. Sit down. Get Put comfy. your hair up in a bun. Yeah. Get on you your comfy clothes. If you don't have hair, just, uh... Give a little rub. Give a little rub on your bald head. Yes. And uh, yeah, so let's let's get into the story. So he was active in the impoverished districts in East End London, um, specifically Whitechapel in 1888. Um, is now is Whitechapel like a town or? Yeah, it's like a um, like a city. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. So like, I thought you meant like physically a Whitechapel. No, no, no. no. Okay. Like Whitechapel is like a like a. A geological. Place. Got it. Location. A place you can go. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
So, like, you can live in Whitechapel. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, um, a lot of, or almost all of Jack the Ripper's victims were prostitutes. Okay. Um, prostitution was a little bit different than how it is today. For one, they were mostly older women. Oh. So, 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, they... The time, you know, a few years before 1888, there was a lot of suppression of prostitution, which tried, like, they tried to decrease as much prostitution as possible. But the time when Jack the Ripper was active, for the most part, they weren't really following through with that, which caused more women to be allowed out on the streets without mm. being pushed back, which, ex you know, expanded his horizons. His well. options. Yeah, his yeah. options for many people. Ooh. Okay. All right. So, victim profile. Very simple. Prostitutes. Um, most of them were heavily drunken prostitutes. Um, at the time, someone who was a prostitute and heavily drinking was seen as someone looking for trouble. So, people mm -hmm. didn't necessarily help them. They didn't, or, like, symp yeah, sympathize, sympathize with them. Yeah. So, this would also cause them That's to be rude. very disoriented. Mm. Um when someone was attacking them, so, or if, you know, a man comes up so to you. So people physically saw them being attacked and, like, there didn't do anything? There is, um, one person, um, one of the victims, someone literally saw her being attacked, and, um, he just walked across the street because he didn't want to be involved, and they're 99% sure that he saw the very early stages of her being murdered, which we'll get to. That doesn't really surprise me around that time era, because, like, everyone was just, like, trying to kill people for anything yeah and just like but at the same time like you look at it like it's a prostitute she was talking to a man like you couldn't really it just looked like they were in some kind of like argument not necessarily like him mm -hmm. murdering her yeah but he didn't want to he was just gonna didn't put, recognize it as yeah. that he, he didn't want to put like himself a, in harm's way yeah either. like a quarrel yeah catch you so all right so we're gonna go right on to the victim so the first victim, her name was Mary Ann Nichols a lot of people her friends family acquaintances called her Polly um, she was born in 1845, so she was 43 at the time of her death. Um, she was a single mother of five children, and she separated from her husband in 1880. After the separation, she fell into poverty. She succumbed to alcoholism, which you'll see in almost all of these victims. That's kind of what happened with all of them. Mm -hmm. They got divorced. Alcohol took over. Didn't really, you know, they had to resort to prostitution for money to stay places so gotcha yes um so she found her way to east end Lon london in august 1888 and she resided in two common lodging houses so every single almost every single one of these people resided in lodging houses lodging houses you had to is pretty much like almost like a motel like, okay. you paid to sleep there. Okay. Like, you paid for the night. Mm -hmm. So, at this time, it was four pence to sleep there. Okay. What that's equivalent to? I don't know. I was going to say, do you know what it's I forgot to? to look that one up. Oh, my God. But I can look it up after and I can Podcasting tell you. Podcasting rule number one. Okay. It's listen. fine. It's fine. We'll give you But, a yes, four pence was the cost of one night. So, on August 30th, 1888, Polly was unable to pay for another light of lodging at Wilmot's, which is where she was staying at the time. She commonly or often switched between Wilmot's on 18 Thrall Street and the White House located on Flower and Dean Street. So, this night, she was supposed to be staying at Wilmot's. Um, she couldn't come up with the money for it, so they forced her out um, 
on the streets, which made her resort to going into prostitution that night so that she could come up with the money, which was also called DOS money. I don't know why it was called DOS money. It doesn't really... Hmm. Yeah, I've never heard of that before, like DOS money, but that was... And this is in England? Yes. Okay. London, England. London, England area. Yes. Okay. So, specifically the Whitechapel area. Okay. Which is a part of that. Yeah. Um, But, you know, she had to go out onto the streets, and she had to come up with the money to stay there for the night. Um, She, when she was escorted out of the house, which I found this very interesting, she was wearing a bonnet. Mm-hmm. Um, she believed that this bonnet was going to attract a lot of men, um, and she would easily make the money that she needed. Mm-hmm. She was quoted as saying, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I have now. As the um, keeper was escorting her out of the building, telling her she can't stay. Hmm. Yes. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I see you. Yeah. I see you, Polly. So pretty much, you'll, this is kind of like a common theme you'll see among all of them. Um, the last time Polly was seen alive was at 2.30 a.m. on August 31st, 1888. Um, Polly's friend Emily Holland had seen a heavily drunken Polly um, early that morning, and um, Polly explained to her friend that she already made three times the amount that she needed to stay there, but she spent it. Oh. So she was, she made the money, spent it, made the money, spent it on alcohol, all that kind of stuff, so she still didn't have the money to go back to the lodging home. And Emily saw Polly, who was very drunken, very disoriented. Um, her friend tried to convince her to come back to Wilmot's for her, with her for the rest of the night. And, you know, just, you know, sleep it off, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but she refused. So Emily couldn't, didn't really do anything. She just let Polly walk off. Um, and she stumbled drunkenly into the night along Whitechapel Road. This was the last time she would be seen alive. So on August 31st at 3.45 a.m., an unidentified woman's body was laying next to a gate in Bucks Row. Um, this was about a 10-minute walk from where she had seen Emily. Okay. So, not very far. She didn't get very far. Okay. So, um, upon first sight, um, all that could be seen uh, was Polly's throat had been cut to the back of her spine. This almost severed her head from her body. Oh my god. At this point, she was unidentified. Oh! So they did okay. not know who she was. Okay. Um, but obviously we know. Oh, know. dear lord. Yes, so um, that was just upon first look. Um, after taking the body to the mortuary, um, is in, examined by Inspector Spratling of the Metropolitan Police J Division. Um, Spratling had discovered that the body also had a large gash along the entire abdomen where the body had been disemboweled, <gasps> which is a common theme in these victims. Like all of her insides just, yes, were taken out. Were they with her? No. Oh my God. He's probably a cannibal. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. That's a, that's a thing. I cracked the case, everyone. <laughs> he's a cannibal. We still don't know his name or who it was, but he's a cannibal. All right. Um, Polly was later identified that day by her father, Edward Walker, and her eldest son, who was also named Edward. Hmm. Yes. Okay. Easy to to remember. Yeah. An hour later, Polly's estranged ex-husband visited her, um, or her body. Um, He was invisible to stress, and he was seen, you know, bent down and whispered to her, I forgive you as you are what you have been to me. He exited the building. Um, in a deadly pale state and stated, well, there is no mistake about it. It has come to a sad end at last. A little weird for a husband to say. 
or yeah. ex-husband. I don't know. It was just kind of, I guess, you know, at the time. Different. Did they look at him, like, as a suspect or? No. Oh. No, they didn't. Okay. So yeah. they were just like, well, these were, you got to think, like, these were prostitutes. They didn't really care. Yeah, they didn't really care about them. They didn't care. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. The funeral of Mary Ann Nichols or Polly um, took place in secrecy to ward off any sightseers, which was a common, common thing. Like everybody, because she was so, like, beat up and Yeah, well, open. everybody wanted to see this disemboweled, mm, almost ugh. beheaded. They're, like, so, like, I don't know. That time frame time, is just so, like... They didn't have anything better to do. Yeah, they were, like, so accepting of just, like, watching death. Yeah, so they, they did it in secrecy to, you know, kind of keep away any prying eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, she was buried on September 6, 1888. Um, there is now a plaque in the city of London Cemetery that is dedicated to her, which a lot of people still go to. So you can go today and go see that. That's nice. Yes. Next victim. Polly was buried September 6th. Um, this happened two days after she was buried. Okay. So the next victim, her name is Annie Chapman. She was also known as Dark Annie. I couldn't find why. Okay. Um, but that was a nickname. That was given to her. Interesting. Um, she was born in 1840, so she was 48 at the time of her death. Um, just like Polly, Annie's life was quickly spiraling due to alcoholism. Um, she left her husband, John Chapman, and several children. Um, her ex-husband, John, had sent Annie allowances periodically to help him or to help her, um, you know, pay for her boarding mm-hmm. um, until his death in 1886. Um, she also made money selling her crochet work, matches, flowers, and used casual prostitution to make up for the rest. Matches? Like, she sold matches? It's like, beach. I think so. Okay. I was kind of confused by that, but I put it in there because it was something that I saw. Okay, okay. Yes, but, you know, her crochet work and all that kind of stuff. Was, gotcha. Was a big thing. All right, so... Um, in September 1888, Annie was residing in Spitalfields. I think that's how you say it, or Spitalfields. I'm going to say Spital because okay. that sounds better. Um, specifically in Crossingham's Lodging House on Dorset Street. Um, Annie was known as having a cordial relationship with other tenants and was even described as an inoffensive soul whose weakness was a fondness for drink. So she clearly, apparently, did not have a lot of um, hatred toward pe- towards people. Except, she did get into a fight with another tenant in the last week of August. This left her with a black eye, a bruised chest and head, and in lots of pain. Ooh. So, at the time of her death, she was very already, already very beat up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, this is going on to the night of her death. At 5 p.m. on September 7th, 1888, Annie met with a friend. Her name was Amelia Palmer on Dorset Street. Um, she was described as looking very ill she was complaining about feeling Ill, Ill and not having motivation to do anything. She, you know, she just didn't feel good, didn't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Amelia, I couldn't find what she left for, for, but she left and returned 10 minutes later and found Annie in the same spot that she would, had been talking to her earlier. Um, but this time Annie was trying to gather up her spirits. She was like, okay, like I need to make money to get lodging tonight. Like there's no point in being, you know in the dumps and feeling sick so she was Mm -hmm. trying to kind of hype herself up a little bit to go get some money which you go go (laughs) (laughs) little Um, did she know yeah so basically if she didn't go out and make money she wasn't gonna have anywhere to stay for the night right um so at 11 30 that night annie had shown up in crossingham's 
and asked the deputy keeper, Timothy Donovan, if she could sit in the kitchen. After him not seeing her for a few days, he, you know, just casually asked, you know, what she had been doing, where she was, and she replied in the infirmary, which I'm going to assume is because of the injury from the fight. Um, so the infirmary was like a hospital. Yeah, like okay. infirmary, um, emergency room. Got it. Yeah, so I'm going to assume that was probably from the injuries that she... I would assume so, because it sounds yeah. like it was a little painful. Yeah, definitely like, you know, a lot of, you know, bru- black eye, bruised head and chest. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, so. my God, that made me shiver. Okay. <laughs> so she remained in the kitchen until the early hours of the morning on September 8th. At 1.45, Timothy sent John Evans, the lodging house's night watchman, to collect the four pens from her for her bed. He found her a little tipsy eating potatoes in the kitchen, which I would be eating potato scoop, Mm, you know. Yeah. Um, He asked her for the money, to which she wearily replied, I haven't got it. I am weak and ill, and I have been in the infirmary. So she was trying to, you know, get off without paying for that. Yeah. They weren't having that. Um, He pretty much told her she couldn't pay. She can't stay. You know, she tried to stay a little bit longer, but they were like, you know, no, you have to leave unless you can pay. So, she left telling him to save her bed because, you know, she'd be back with her DOS, and he escorted her out. Um, he recalled looking back that she did seem a little bit tipsy, but she was not drunk. So, okay. Yes. Okay. She was not okay. drunk. Just a little bit tipsy. Just a little, she was just buzzed. Yes. yes, just buzzed. So, at 5.30 a.m. that morning, September 8th, 1888... Elizabeth Long saw her talking with a man outside number 29 in Hanbury Street. 29 was one of the, like, lodging houses. Okay, okay, yeah. that makes sense. Um, since there was nothing suspicious about the couple, she continued on her way. She didn't really take notice. They were not They were just talking. They were fighting. Nothing was really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, 30 minutes later at 6 a.m., John Davis, an elderly resident of number 29 found her horrifically mutilated body lying between the steps and the fence in the backyard of the house. So literally a 30-minute time period. 30-minute time period between when somebody saw her casually talking to a man and then her body was found mutilated. Just laying there. Um, She was later identified by her younger brother, Fountain Smith. I like that name. Interesting name. Um, she was buried on September 14th, 1888, just like Mary Ann Nichols' funeral. It was done in secrecy to keep wandering eyes out. There is a memorial for Annie in the Manor Park Cemetery. So, next victim is Elizabeth Stride. Um, she immigrated to England from Sweden in 1866. Three years after her moving to England, she married John Stride. They opened a coffee shop in Crisp Street Poplar. Coffee shop is a good... I don't know why it's stunning. Crisp Street Poplar. Okay. Um, the marriage didn't last very long. She separated from him in 1877 and began residing in common, common lodging houses. She also became involved with a man named Michael Kidney, which... There was some suspicion about him, but we're not going to get into him just because my next episode is going to be all about the... Okay you know the suspects so they looked into him but not the husband of the first one not that i'm aware of okay i'll have to do more research but i don't think that they did some bullshit because there was i remember i saw this um like newspaper from that time Mm -hmm. and it was like uh like a drawn picture of him it was like michael kidney the man she was residing with at the time of her death nothing else but you know interesting this is michael kidney (laughs) So, over the next few years, Elizabeth began drinking heavily. 
She wound up in Spitalfields Lodging House 32, in House 32 on Flower and Dean Street. So, another one who drank too much, went into a spiral, and found herself in a lodging house. Um, she had been away from the lodging house for a while. I couldn't find specifically what for. But um, after a very long absence, she returned to it on the Tuesday before her death. Okay. So she would have just stayed away. She would have lived. So September 28th, 1888, Elizabeth spent the day cleaning two rooms in the lodging house, which she was paid six pence for. By 6.30 p.m., she was enjoying a drink at the Queen Head, Queen's Head Pub. Um, this was the center of Fashion Street and Commercial Street. These are very long names. Yeah. And it's like, very it's very hard to like figure out where everything is. Yeah. In correlation to flowers, like, fashion. Yeah. So Sheesh. Yeah. But it's all in like relatively like the same area around Whitechapel. Okay. So um so after leaving the pub, she quickly returned home to change for a night out and left the lodging house at seven thirty PM. Um, she was sighted numerous times, completely fine throughout the next several hours. Um, by midnight, she had found her way onto Burner Street. So, you know, she was out partying, having a good living time. Living it up. Living it up. And bam. Okay. At 12.45 a.m. on September 30th, a man named Israel Schwartz uh, saw her being attacked by a man in the gateway off Burner Street, also known as Duke Fields Yard. Um, however, he, you know, didn't want anything to do with this domestic abuse argument, whatever he mm -hmm. thought was going on, and he just crossed the road to avoid it, um, because he didn't want to get dragged into it. It is highly likely that he actually saw the early stages of her murder, which we talked about in the beginning, so there it is. Um, at 1 a.m., Lewis Dimeschutz. The steward of a club that sided onto Dutefield's yard came down Burner Street with his pony. So he's you know, his riding a little pony. He was going, I think, home or something like that. Trotting. He was trotting along and turned into the open gates of Dutefield's. I don't know how you say it. Dutefield's yard. Um, when he did so, the pony like pulled to the left um, and he looked into the darkness and saw a dark form on the ground. He tried to lift it with his, like, whip that he used for the horse, but it was too heavy. So, he jumped down and struck a match, and it was wet and windy, and the match flickered for a few seconds, and it worked, and, you know, flickered a little bit, and he was able to see it was a woman lying on the ground. For some reason, he thought this woman might be his wife, and that, you know, she was drunk, so he went into the club to get some help to lift her up. Oh my god. But he found his wife in the kitchen. And so he took a candle and him and several other people went out into the yard. And by the candle's light, they were able to see a pool of blood gathering beneath the woman. So he thought it was his wife. Just drunk laying on the ground. Yeah, just drunk, chilling on the ground. Like, here, honey, come here. And it was Second, let me go get somebody yeah. to help lift yeah. you up. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. Um so the police are really that dark outside. I mean like come on. I mean they don't really have strength. I know, but like come mean? on. It can't be that dark. I mean I I'm they sure didn't have like phones, they didn't have cars. All in the blood there's no lights or anything, you know. Jesus. There was it was just darkness. You know? Oh my god. 
Um, so the police were sent for and a doctor was summoned who pronounced life extinct. That is exactly how the article that I read and I liked it. So I kept it. Got it. Yeah. Pronounced life that extinct. That is very like pish posh. Yeah. I was like, okay. Word. Okay. Um, he noted, um, as in the other cases of the previous victims, that the woman's throat had been cut and the rest of her body was not mutilated. So the two before this had been mutilated, um, but her throat was cut just like the other two. So her insides were still there? Yes, her insides were still there. She was not disemboweled. Well, that's nice of them, I guess. Um, yes. The body was moved to the nearest mortuary, which still stands. Um, it was... Churchyard of St. George in the East, and she was identified as Elizabeth Stride there. Um, she was laid to rest in East London Cemetery, October 1888. Um, her death was not covered by the press very much. That's rude. It just kind of pushed like, to the side. Why? Because... Yeah. Because she wasn't mutilated? Is that why we're not going to like give her the... That, or they just didn't care. It was just another... <sighs> Another prostitute who, you know, just died. Yeah. Two more left, guys, and the last one's the longest. The fourth victim was Catherine Eddowes. She was born in 1842, so she was 46 at the time of her death. Um, She was born in Wolverhampton, Hampton? Wolverhampton, but moved to London at a young age with her parents. By the time she reached her mid-teens, both of her parents had died. Um, So she was split from her siblings and forced to live with her aunt back in Wolverhampton. Oh. Yeah, so parents um, died, and she was separated from her siblings. That's rude. Yes. That um, sucks. Yeah, it does suck. So, not a great start to life. Yeah. Um, later on in life, she met a former, former soldier, Thomas Conway, and there were suspicions of marriage, but no actual proof. She did have a tattoos with the initials TC in blue ink. Oh, they had arm. tattoos back then. Yeah. I didn't think. I mean, I kind of like knew that in the back of my mind. Probably not the way we have tattoos. Yeah, probably it was very unsanitary. But um, she did have the initials TC in blue ink on her arm. Ooh. So, suspicions. Uh, they went on to have three chair ch- carriages. <laughs> I don't know where I got the word from. <laughs> The couple went on to have three children and earned a very meager income. Um, They were known as chat books, which were people who sold books for cheap um, on the streets by peddlers. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. I want to be called a chat book. Occupation. Yeah. You wouldn't really think that'd be like something that would be a job. Yeah, that was like a thing. But it was. I guess. They were called chat books. Couldn't just be a librarian. No. You want to sell them for cheap on the streets. Got it. Yes. So, in 1870, they moved to Westminster, London. Um, Catherine had begun to drink heavily, which did not pair with her fiery temper, which led to many split-ups back together, splitting up back together Very unstable relationship. Yes, very toxic relationship. Um, Catherine's sisters also claimed they suspected domestic violence, as Catherine often had black eyes, bruises, that kind of thing. Jesus. So, oh yeah, toxic relationship. In 1880, the couple officially split and Catherine moved to East End, London, and found housing in Cooney Common Lodging House 55 on Flower and Dean Street in 1881. During this time, Catherine met um, a man. His last name is Kelly. I don't have his first name written down. Okay. His last name is Kelly. This was a, a love interest person. They weren't married, never got married, anything like that. 
Um, but each summer, Catherine and Kelly would head for Kent to go hop picking, um, which was a popular way for East Enders um, at the time to enjoy a break from the overcrowded streets. Um, and it's also provided a little bit of cash um, at the same time. In September 1888, they set off for the annual hop picking break. Um, the hop yield was disappointingly low that year um, because it was unusually an unusually wet summer. Um, so work was limited and they decided to return to London. Um, after arriving back in the capital on the afternoon of Friday the 28th of September, um, Kelly managed to earn six pence that day. Um, Catherine had taken two pence for herself and handed him four pence, telling him to use it to get a bed at Cooney's that night. Um, she told him that she would get a bed in the casual ward of Shoe Lane Workhouse. In the Shoe Lane Workhouse. Which is just where she was going. Caught it. Caught it. <laughs> um, although she did get a bed, there was some trouble at the workhouse and she was asked to leave. Um, she turned up at Cooney's at 8 a.m. on Saturday morning and the couple went to a pawnbroker shop on Church Street where they pawned Kelly's boots using the money to buy breakfast. So she just like walked around with no shoes? He walked out with no shoes. Oh, Kelly's shoes. Kelly's boots. He just went around they shoeless them for some breakfast. And they went to go get breakfast with that money that they pawned oh, them for. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if you're desperate, I guess. Yeah, they were desperate because wait till you hear what's next. So that afternoon, Catherine told Kelly she was going to try and borrow some money from her daughter in Bermondsey, and at 2 p.m. they parted. Um, according to Kelly's later testimony, he warned her about the Whitechapel murder, but Catherine brushed aside his fear, fears, saying, don't you fear for me, and told him, I'll take care of myself, and I shan't fall to his hands. Oh my god. Little did it's she like know. she jinxed herself. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Um, it was never establish how she spent the rest of her afternoon um she didn't visit her daughter um she did acquire money somehow though they don't know how um because 8 p.m that evening she was arrested for drunkenness drunkenness on Aldgate high street by police constable robinson robinson in the city of london police huh. so she somehow she didn't go and visit her daughter but she still got money somehow and decided to go get drunk with it then got arrested for being drunk. I don't know why I put that. God damn it, Catherine. God damn it, Catherine. Um, so because she was arrested for being drunk, she was taken to Bishopsgate Police Station where she was locked in a cell to sober up. She fell asleep. Um, by midnight, she was awake and deemed sober enough for release um, by the city PC George Hutt. Before leaving, she told him that her name was Mary Ann Kelly, which was you know not true um well no her name's Catherine. but her significant other's last name is kelly yeah so i don't know um yeah but she gave her address as six fashion street which obviously she didn't have an address because she was yeah boarding at the lodging houses they don't know why she just randomly told i don't know that. maybe she was still drunk and they just let her go too early and she was just of her drunkenness just coming up with all this stuff or or what huh but yeah okay so um the policeman escorted her to the door and he told her to close it on her way out <laughs> i thought that was funny um on her way out she said all right good night old cock <laughs> was her reply and she headed out into the early morning that is not appropriate Catherine. well that's what Catherine said <laughs> 
At 1.35 a.m., three men, Joseph Lauding, Joseph Hyam Levy, and Harry Harris, very Is, hard names to type oh and God, to say, that's a lot. Okay. saw her talking with a man at the church passage entrance to Mitre Square, um, located on the eastern fringe of the city of London. It's so like the eastern end, okay. pretty much, where everything else is located. Ten minutes later, at 1.45 a.m., Police Constable Alfred Watkins walked into Mitre Square and discovered her horrifically mutilated body lying in the darkness of the square's southwest corner. Um, as with the previous victims, her throat had been cut and she had been disemboweled, but this time um, he targeted her face. Um, there was a deep V cut into her cheeks and eyelids, and he also removed <gasps> and... Um, disappeared with her uterus oh my god okay so he's just getting more Ooh, jesus okay and with the previous murders he melted away into the night he was not seen no one you know nobody knew who he was don't understand never identified um the funeral of Catherine eddowes took place on the afternoon of monday october 8th um dense Crowds gathered around the mortuary and Golden Lane in the city of London, and thousands of onlookers lined the streets that the funeral was to pass through. Um, so they didn't keep it, like, hush-hush? They like, did not keep this one hush-hush. That's very disrespectful. Um, around 500 people arrived at the city of London Cemetery where the burial was to take place. Jesus. Yeah, so she was really put on display there. That's, yeah, that's not, yeah. That's not cool. Yeah, no, not at all. Not, not a good, not a good, uh... Not a good one there, guys. No, no. Okay. We're on our last big dump. Okay. After many stumbles and Sierra not doing full research. Yeah. It's okay. okay. Get it from Wikipedia. I didn't get all my research from Wikipedia. You like 95% of your research from Wikipedia. No, I didn't. Sus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But look. She told the last, the police officer that her name was Mary Ann Kelly. And this last suspect is Mary Jane Kelly. What the coincidence? I don't Wait. know. So Okay, so like I'll get maybe in. Kelly is the killer. We'll see. Okay. Okay. All right. So our last victim of the five victims of Jack the Ripper. Now of course there could have been more. There most likely was more, but these were the main five ones that a lot of people seem to, you know, know more about. Was Mary Jane Kelly. Um, she was born in 1863, which made her 25, which does not fit his victim profile no, so very because young. she's about 20 years younger than mm-hmm. all the other victims. Um, she is the one we know the least about, but I have the most research on. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, we don't, she, we don't know anything about her past except for what she chose to tell people about her past, okay. what other people know, you know, what other people are saying about it. So we don't have, you know, really anything. They don't even know if her actual name was Mary Kelly. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a little, this one's a little confusing. Um, so we're just going to kind of go with it. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, according to her boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, who she lived with until shortly before her death, she had told him that she was born in Limerick in Ireland and that her father's name was John Kelly, and that she had six or seven brothers and one six one sister. So six or seven brothers. She doesn't remember how many brothers she has. I think she's just a little sus. 
Okay, I don't know what's up with this girl, but like she was really confusing to do research on. Um, so the family moved to Wales when she was a child, and when she was 16, she met and married a collier named Davis or Davies. They don't know which one. Okay. Um, I've seen both for the name. Um, three years later, her husband was killed in a mine explosion, and Mary moved to Cardiff to live with a female cousin who introduced her to prostitution. Yeah. Here you go, cuz. <laughs> Where to go? Just, like, bring me into the hot mess that I have here. Mm-hmm. That was the only way she knew how to make money. Mary moved to London around 1844, where she made the acquaintance of a French woman who ran a high-class brothel in King in Knightsbridge, um, which is an establishment she began working at. So this is where she really, you know, made a living off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, she told Barnett that during this period in her life, she had dressed well, had been driven about in a carriage, and for a time, she led the life of a lady. Okay. So, according to what she told her boyfriend, she made out very well mm-hmm. working in this high-end brothel. Got it. Lived the life of a lady. Which is kind of interesting that she can do that, or she was able to do that if she was a prostitute. That's like this show that I watched on Hulu. It was, like, actually set in this time period. Mm-hmm. And it was all based off of, like, brothels and prostitutions. Mm-hmm. And, like, they were, like, amongst higher-end society and they did live like well yeah it's just like i guess you can't really envision it but like or i can't really envision it because of what a prostitute is like the life that you have to yeah you know but i guess it was a thing um but she had also told him she had made several visits to france at this time and had accompanied a gentleman to paramit up to paramus (laughs) and accompanied a gentleman to paris but not liking there, liking it there, she returned to London after two weeks. Which, how do you not like Paris? I heard they're really rude there. To, like, outsiders. I would fit in just perfectly. <laughs> like, I'd just be rude right back. Like, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I just, you know. <coughs> Jesus. Yeah. Um, from then on, she began using the continental version of her name and often referred to herself as Marie Jeanette Kelly. That sounds a lot like Marie Antoinette, and I think she's just trying to be a poser, but it's yeah. fine. Well, it's the continental version of her name. Oh, okay. Um, so, after that, she suffered a downward spiral. She moved to the east end of London where she lodged with a Miss Buki. I'm going to say because it sounds funny. I'm going to say it that way. She resided off of the Ratcliffe Highway. Um, she, soon after her arrival, she enlisted her landlady's assistance in returning to the West End to retrieve a box that contained dresses of costly description from the French lady. So basically, she asked Miss Buki, like, hey, I need these dresses. But they're on the West End. And I'm on the East End. Got it. Help me out. Um, Mary had heavily started drinking now, and this led to conflict between her and Miss Buki. Um, they, their relationship was becoming strained, um, so Mary moved out and went to lodge at the home of Miss Mary McCarthy at 1 Breezers Hill, Pennington Street, St. George in the East. So long. <laughs> so long. I just really want to get all the information oh, yeah. in there. <sighs> By 1886, she had moved in the 
Cooley's Common Lodging House in Thrall Street, which was one of the streets that we heard way, way earlier. Um, that was a common one where a lot of prostitutes lived and lodged at. Um, while living there, um, it was Good Friday, the 6th of April in 1887, that she met Joseph Barnett, who worked at a as a porter at Billingsgate Fish Market. So he worked at a fish market. He was a, he was a uh-huh. porter. He's a fish man. He's a fish man. Um, the two were soon living together, and by 1888, they were renting a tiny room at 13 Miller's Court from John McCarthy, who owned a Chandler shop just outside Miller's Court on Dorset Street. Okay. So, Dorset Street was... Dorset Street, Thrall Street, um, Flower and Dean Street was all near Whitechapel Street. Okay. Which is where a lot of the murders... Got it. Were. So it's just kind of like... Yes, it's just a bunch of streets in a, in a town. Kind of the center yeah. hub. Yes. All right, so those who knew Mary around this time seemed to be very fond of her. Um, she was an excellent scholar and an artist. Um, didn't have, like, a degree or anything, but she was just, you know, a very educated person. Um, some One of her friends described her as much superior to most persons in her position in life. So she is thought of very highly from her friends, even though she was... I don't know if at this time she was still doing prostitution or if she fell back into it. But right. when she was with this man, she, in renting this apartment, she was thought of very, very highly of her friends. Hmm. So according to her landlord, John McCarthy, her only fault was that when in liquor, she could be very noisy. But otherwise, she was a very quiet woman. Um, her and Barnett appeared to live happily together until mid-1888. He lost his market job and she had returned to prostitution, which caused arguments between them. Um, during one heated exchange, a pane in the window by the door of the room had been broken. So it got a little bit heated, a little bit violent, um, because she had resorted back to prostitution to make money. Which, I mean, like, he could have went and found a job if yeah. he was that upset about well, it. Well, uh, yeah. So, because, you know, he lost his job and their fights about what she was doing to make money, um, she began falling behind with her rent, and by early November, she owed her landlord 29 shillings in rent. So, on October 30th, 1888, Joseph Barnett moved out, although he and Mary remained on friendly terms. Um, He would drop by to see her, the last time being around 7.30 on the evening of Thursday, November 8th. He did not stay long when he visited her. Um, Several people claimed to have seen her during the next 14 hours. One of them was George George Hutchinson, um, an unemployed laborer who met her on Commercial Street at 2 a.m. on the 9th of November. Um, She asked him if he would lend her six pence, to which he replied that he couldn't as he'd spent all his money. Seems to be a common theme among many of the people. Spending it all. <laughs> um, she replied saying that she has to go find money. Um, and she continued along Commercial Street, where a man coming from the opposite direction tapped her on the, on the shoulder and said something to her. Um, and they both started laughed at, laughing. Um, this man was seen putting his arm around Mary. And they started walking back along Commercial Street 
passing Hutchinson, the man who she just talked to, who was standing under the lamp by Queen he- Queen's Head Pub at the junction of Fashion Street and Commercial Street, which mm-hmm. is where one of the victims actually went to. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah earlier. Yeah. So all in the, this was all in the same, very close together. Mm-hmm. Um, when he passed Hutchinson, the man who was walking with Mary had his head down and his hat over his eyes. Um, but Hutchinson did stoop down and look at him in the face. Um, but then he described the man as giving him a very stern look. You're like, what are you looking at, like, dude? What the hell are you looking at, buddy? Um, Hutchinson followed them as they crossed into Dorset Street, which he watched them turn on to Miller's Court. He waited outside the court for 45 minutes, um, but they didn't reemerge from it, so he just left. So he was a little bit suspicious of this guy, decided to follow them, see where they were going, waited for, for them for 45 minutes outside of Miller's Court, and when they didn't come out, he just left. He didn't. So he wasn't suspicious enough to go look. No, he was just suspicious to see what they were doing. Okay. And when he couldn't find them or they didn't come back out for him to follow them again, he just left. Um, whether or not he had other intentions, hmm. I don't know. <sighs> All right. So around 4 a.m., two of Mary's neighbors heard a faint cry of murder. But because such cries were frequent in the area, um, in result of drunken fights and other things like that, they just ignored it. So I guess... People crying murder was a very common occurrence. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. If I heard someone be like, murder, and... Yeah, I'd be like, call the police! 911! <laughs> Alright, so at 10.45 of the morning um, of November 9th, her landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, Thomas Bowery... Bower? It's Bower. Thomas Bower, in r- round to Mary's room. Um... To try to get some rent money from her mm-hmm. because she owed them so much. 29 shillings, whatever. If anybody can figure out what 29 shillings is equivalent to, please tell me. Yes. Because I would like because to Because we want to know. Yeah. And we can't find And it. we're too dumb to Google it, yeah. so. So, Bauer marched into Miller's court and banged on her door. Um, so, Miller's court is where she was living. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. So. I remember. Okay. I was like, I don't know if I remember. But that's where she was living. So, he marched in there and banged on her door and there was no reply tried to open it but it was locked um so he went around and broke the window pane reached in and pushed aside a curtain he later um it said ashen faced burst back in you know very pale very ghostly looking he burst mm-hmm. back in to uh, mccarthy's shop on dorset street um said he knocked on the door here this is what he said he said i knocked at the door and could not make anyone answer i looked through the window and saw a lot of blood um mccarthy replied good god you don't mean that so pretty much they both went back to miller's court looked in through where he had broken in and it was just a very gory bloody scene um he recalled hearing about the Whitechapel murders but he never expected to see it so the police are immediately sent for and one of the first officers at the scene was Walter Dew, who many years later would recall the horror that he saw through the window. Um, he said there was little left of her, not much more than a skeleton. Her face was terribly scarred and mutilated. All of this was horrifying enough, but the mental picture of the sight, which remains most vividly with me, was the poor woman's eyes. They were wide open and seemed to be staring straight at me with a look of terror. Oh my god. Yeah, so she was pretty much... M- 
maliciously mutilated. But her eyes were wide open with terror. I wonder if he, like... Because I'm sure they didn't really do, like, autopsies, like, that well. Like, I wonder if they were, like, drugged to be still. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if if they went for the throat first, they're not going to make a lot of noise. That's true, but... So, so as the news of another murder spread around the neighborhood, crowds of people ended up on Dorset Street, um, where the police actually had to keep them at bay from trying to go in and look at it. Oh my god. There was this one case that I was listening to, I don't remember what it was, but they they were literally, like, people were asking to walk through the crime scene of this, like, murder, like, family murder. Because they were, it was so long ago that they just had nothing better to do. So they wanted to walk through and, s- and just see this bloody murderous crime like, scene. Um, hello, this isn't a museum, ma'am. <sighs> Jesus. I know. Okay, so once her body had been removed, um, the windows and the doors had been boarded up and padlocked. And those who lived in the vicinity were pretty much just left to be there like they didn't do any extra precautions they didn't patrol the street more they just boarded up the crime scene and told them go on with your lives someone died next to you yeah (sighs) yeah move along yeah carry on (laughs) it was oh my god it's like they just didn't care they were like okay well this person died so lock your doors i guess it's another one yeah let's toss it off to (sighs) oh jesus (laughs) On Monday, November 19th, 1888, the word got out that the funeral of Mary Kelly was to take place that day. So, crowds began to congregate around St. Leonard's Church, where she, where the funeral was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the body had actually remained in the neighboring mortuary since the day of the, mor- of the murder. Um, they surge forward trying like to touch the coffin as it was being carried down um why you know how they like carry yeah people were why do you what do you think you're gonna what what okay first off what is like the idea of like here let me just touch yeah people were pushing to touch this coffin (sighs) um and the officers had to fight desperately the whole to hold oh my god that is from touching the the you know what they should have done they should have just like let people believe that this is where she's being buried and they're just taking her somewhere else yeah i don't know why as as the as the murders went on they just cared less about the secrecy yeah it's like at the very beginning they're like don't tell anyone don't tell anyone and then all of a sudden it's like oh well now we're fighting off people trying to touch this dead murdered lady's coffin in the freaking hell yeah so pretty much dense crowds lined the entire street all you know all the way to the cemetery um only mourners were allowed to enter the cemetery so only people who should have been there were actually allowed to enter it so that's one thing. see that's like the messed up part it's like they're not there to like mourn her death no or give condolences they're literally they're, there just to like touch her coffin and show. see like a dead body just yeah, for they, like they want shits the, and giggles. the thrill of it which is gross but that's just how, like, it was back then. Um, so only mourners were allowed to be in there. Um, okay, so she was just buried and laid to rest in a small chapel, a, sem- a cemetery near a small chapel. And those are the five victims of Jap. Do Jap. Of Jap. 
<laughs> this one I need to go home. All right, so those are the five victims of Jack the Ripper. Um, what do you think, Kirsten? <laughs> <sighs> I don't know. I feel like I gave a lot of commentary during. Yeah. But goddamn. Goddamn. <laughs> it's just like, uh, just like thinking about like how they were. Ooh, I can't. Yeah. Just it like makes my this, skin crawl. It just got more like malicious. Yeah. It looks like he took a break in the middle, though, by just slashing the one girl's throat. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to go a little extra for the next one. I'm going to draw V's on her face. Oh, my God. I can't. I can't. Yeah. It was just a very brutal few months. Because you got to think, the first victim was... uh, And that's the thing. It was only a few months. Yeah. It was in August. End of August. August 31st. And the fifth victim which there most definitely could have been more was november Ugh. so literally a few months that all these murders happened and now you'll probably cover this like for your next episode but like was like did he just stop after that like it was just kind of no like, there are more off. more like but um, they just didn't care to make connections or it was there was less connections and it was in different areas okay okay so these were all same areas same um right so he almost like started traveling yeah like traveling um and they weren't as frequent i don't believe i see i see that you're aware of i guess you could say Hmm. Well, so um, Sierra's part two won't be like next week, but it'll be like the week after. So sorry. So sorry about that. Um, But yeah, so we kind of like blew this last time. I had to like uh, um, record it separately. Um, But just make sure that you guys follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, We are on what? Spotify and Amazon. Spotify and Amazon Music. Um, which you can get through our RSS yes, page. Yes, which is Killer's Crime and Coffee, which you can search that on all those platforms and find us. Yes. Uh, make sure you guys leave reviews for us on Spotify and Amazon because yes. we want to know if we are doing things to your liking Tell and we want to become famous and we want to be able to uh, be fed fruit and fanned. Yes. Okay. Tell us what you want us to do better. Yes. Um, also, don't forget, give us your coffee orders. Even, you know, maybe add suggestions in there on what you want us to cover. Yeah. Um, I have a good story that I might cover next week. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it yet. I might hold off because I am currently watching the show of oh, this yeah, said case. Spoil it. So I want to kind of wait a little bit. So uh, I'm not sure if I'll do it next week. But uh, look out for our post on Facebook because uh, I will probably put on there what we or what I will be covering next week. Yeah. So I guess we're just going to. Also. Shout out to Kobe again. I'm going to mention him yes. in every podcast. I will also link his um, band's Instagram and yes. his Instagram mm-hmm. and his podcast where he, not his podcast, his Spotify I was gonna say his account. Podcast. No, he doesn't have a podcast. But I'll, link, I'll link his Spotify account where you can find his music, his individual music. Yes, yes. Um, so thank you, Kobe, for the. He is the one which you, if I mean, if you just happen to be listening to our second episode and not our first episode, um, he is the one that created our intro and outro music. Yes. Our little creepy tune. Yes. Um, also, shout out again to our sister Alexis for editing this. This is going to be a long one. Yeah. Sorry, little buddy. Little sis. So, sorry about that. Um, yeah. So, keep on sipping, keep on I guess. sipping, guys. <laughs> okay. So, we'll catch you on the flip side. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.